This presentation is from UX Australia 2020, day three. We are going to begin today with a, a presentation from Dr. Jess Berenson Shaw, who's based in Wellington. Um, she tells us that it's about to hail, so hopefully it really doesn't start hailing in the middle of her talk, but we're, we're joined by Jessica, uh, by Jess, um, and we're looking forward to hearing about how narratives are an important tool in helping us talk about and start to initiate change in systems. So as Jess joins us. Hello. There you go. It's about to hail. Apparently so. It's sunny at the moment, but I was going to hang out my washing quickly before I did the keynote. The benefits of being at home while also being a keynote presenter, you can look out. But yeah, no, it tells me it's going to hail. So Okay. Well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we get through without that disruption. I'm going to hand over to you, Jess. Thanks very much for joining us. Great. Thanks, Steve. I'm going to share my screen now. So yep. bear with me while I do a bit of fiddling around. Tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, experience and sure he tangata te tiriti tēnei. Um, I'm talking to you from my home in Whanganui Tata or Wellington in New Zealand. And I just want to acknowledge the mana whenua of this place which I'm in, which is uh, the land of Ngāti Toa, Te Awa and Whanau Taranaki, uh, the iwi of, uh, of Whanganui Tata. So I've just told you that my name is Jess and I've told you that I'm a person of the Treaty of Waitangi, which is the key founding document here in New Zealand. And that's a document which allows Tauiwi or non-Māori like myself uh, and my family to live on this land with tangata whenua. And I've just acknowledged the three iwis or tribes of this region. So thank you, Steve, and to UX2 2020 to inviting me to speak today. This is a new audience for me. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to scientists and researchers and policymakers. So it's always great to know that the kind of language of stories and narratives is something which is fascinating to most people um, outside of those areas as well. And um, something that people from different industries are wanting to understand. So I'm just going to move my slides on. So a little bit about me and the workshop. I was born and raised here in Wellington and my ancestors came here from Scotland and England, mainly from farming and working class families at various times between the 1840s and 1900. And I started my work life in health research and practice and worked in various places around the world actually, mainly as what I like to call an evidence agitator. So for me, I have this vision that all the amazing knowledge that we have in the world is used across industry and across government and across our communities to build the sort of society where everyone gets what they need um, and where our environment really is at the heart of what we do. Uh, so everyone feels included and respected and all the systems of knowledge are used to better our lives in the world that supports us. And I absolutely believe that that's possible. So that's why I started my career and was working really hard to get science and knowledge into decision making. And I did something which is really common for lots of us in this space. I used very good facts to do so. And after a few good years of that in various settings from health care to social and economic policy, I was a bit frustrated by what felt like pushing the proverbial uphill, to be quite honest. Uh, getting really good knowledge and information at the heart of decision making, especially the type of information that would support a society that takes care of everybody's needs and would lead to much greater um, prioritisation of our environment, is actually quite difficult. And... So I think what happened is I approached the problem really from a different angle. I really wanted to understand why facts didn't work in the way that I thought they should and the way that I felt that they did for me. So I read quite a lot from across quite a lot of different disciplines. My original research is in health psychology and in population and public health, but I moved into areas of linguistics and anthropology and implementation science and really, I just wanted to understand what was happening. And as I said, why facts don't move people like I feel they should? And what was it that I could do differently as opposed to the people who I was talking to do differently? And so I wrote a book 
because uh, academics, we really can't help ourselves, but also because um, running it down really uh, helped me make sense of it all. And it was added to what is already quite a substantial body of writing on the issue. Obviously, some more fun than others. A friend of mine found this um, at the time when my book came out, which is pretty amazing to me and just made me laugh a little bit. Um, and it was at this time that Marianne Elliott and I founded the workshop. So the workshop is the what we run now together. It's a not-for-profit, what we call narrative research collaborative. And our work is to both understand best knowledge, but also use narrative research for what we call systems change. So that's me. And what I'm going to talk about today is why stories and narrative matter so much when we're interested in changing the current systems that we have and that can be any type of system i obviously work in particular types of systems but you'll have your own systems that you work in i want to talk about why this work is hard and why facts are really important they're necessary but they're not sufficient why we need to understand the landscapes of story and thinking that we're talking into before we set off trying to shift people's thinking. How we can use narratives to shift that thinking and the science behind narratives. And finally, what I'm going to do is give you a framework that we use that hopefully is useful for you as well for telling stories about systems change and work in systems change. First of all, I'm going to start with a story, and it's a story that got told a long time ago in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, and it's to show how powerful stories can be and how a story told over and over again can shape our discourse, shape our mental models, and shape actions and decisions for generations to come. So these guys with the rather impressive facial hair, actually, which would probably be at home in Cuba Street in Wellington today, where I live, um, they make up a group of men who had financial and political power in the 1860s in Auckland and New Zealand. And so they were bankers, politicians, media owners, and they're known as the limited circle. And this was a circle, in the circle of men, um, there were a, a couple of guys. And one was this guy called John Logan Campbell, and another was William Brown. They're not pictured here. We don't have pictures of them. And they owned the major newspapers of the time in Auckland, which I think was called the Auckland Star. And they wanted something that a lot of the colonial settlers wanted to, and at that time. They wanted land. And notably, they wanted the land that lay south of Auckland in the Waikato region. Māori, who owned and lived on and had relationship with that land, didn't want to give up their whenua. It's a place or their land. It's a place deeply entwined with their very sense of self and being. And so what happened was a movement of Māori, iwi and hapu, so those are both tribes and sub-tribes of Māori, came together to reject the strong pressure that was coming on them from the then colonial government to purchase their land and, in fact, to take their land. And this was what was known as the Kingitanga movement. And this movement didn't please those guys in the limited circle. So as part of a series of underhand activities, the newspaper men, in collaboration with both the politicians and bankers, as some of them were both politicians and bankers, uh, developed a set of false stories about the threat that Māori posed specifically in the settlement of Auckland to the north. And they really stoked these colonial um, beliefs about violence of Indigenous people, the reality was that the Kingitanga movement was really set up and were only interested about proper recognition of what had been agreed under Te Waitangi in 1840, 20 years before, which so far hadn't been um, followed. But these false stories about the violence of Māori set in motion the conditions for an invasion by the colonial forces. And this, of course, sounds incredibly familiar uh, this is a pattern that we have seen across time, and in, including quite recently. And what the colonial government did was demand that local iwi and hapu align with the crown or leave their whenua. And that's what I'm showing you on this slide. This is the, the crown ultimatum that was given to uh, Māori in the Waikato. 
And what happened was eventually these false stories made way for the implementation of various laws and the war itself in the Waikato and that allowed the Crown to confiscate land from those in the Kingitanga movement and Māori more widely across Aotearoa. So it really had massive repercussions for the next 20 or 30 years if any Māori tried to defend their land from confiscation or taking. And I tell you the story because it's really echoed down the generations. It's shaped thinking about Māori in really negative and false ways. It's impacted the relationships between Māori and Pākehā. And ultimately, it still shapes policies and practices that further harm Māori, which is consistently evidenced through our modern day health justice and social care statistics. So stories shape our thinking, they shape our willingness to accept or reject facts as they really are, they shape policies and they shape lives and responses. And stories started over 160 years ago can still exert a really powerful negative influence today. So what I'm showing you now is a billboard which is part of an infamous political campaign at the time when Māori were working to maintain ownership of their seabed and foreshore. So that's the beach and the area but where the tide moves up and forth. And at the time, racist tropes about Māori and the stories of the other were really used by ad makers, political strategists and politicians. And ultimately, it influenced public thinking and the then Labour government, so that's Helen Clark, who was the Prime Minister at the time, to legislate against Māori self-determination for their own land. And so these stories are really powerful suppressors of both inclusion and aspects of justice. But on the other hand, stories also have the power to deepen people's thinking and shape better systems. So today, while I've told you how a story has um, impacted quite negatively uh, on inclusion and, and justice uh, for Māori in New Zealand, what I also want to tell you is that we can use some of these strategies ourselves of the people who have designed power for power's sake, and we can use good science to build more inclusive systems through what we call narratives for change. So I just want to stop here and talk about this term systems and systems change, which I'm using because I recognize that it's quite abstract. And for lots of you, you will work and use terms like systems in your work. So I want to talk about what it means to me when we say that we want to build or improve our systems in our world and how narratives can help that work. So I want you to imagine that you're standing at the edge of a stream and you see people drowning. So naturally you start to pull people out and people keep coming down the stream and you think, oh, well, I've got to do something more long term than just standing here pulling them out. So you set out a program and this is a program that works to pull people who are drowning out of the stream. And this keeps going on for some years and there are more programs to help pull people who are drowning out of the river. And eventually some people get a bit curious and they wonder why all these people are ending up in the river drowning. So they start walking upstream to see how people got into the river in the first place. And upstream, you see things that you don't see when you stand downstream on the banks pulling people out. You see how some people are given opportunities to get out of the stream based on who they are. And you see further up that some people have bridges built in their neighborhoods, uh, while others have to try and cross the stream by wading during times of flood. And you see that for some people, the fish that they used to catch and eat have all been poisoned because their ecosystem has been degraded by people and heavy industry. And right at the top, at the source of the river, you see a good proportion, say 70% of the water has been diverted off by wealthy people who are using it to run their heavy industrial processing factory. And what you also see up there is that the people being pushed in are the workers in that factory. They have few worker protections and they're hurt and injured in the work. And in fact, the same people who had their lands and waters confiscated for use by the factory owners are those people who are working there and also being pushed in upstream. And that's because of all the rules that have set up in the economy to allow this to happen. So that's basically one way of thinking about a system. It's about looking upstream to the causes of the problem we experience and thinking about how we can fix them at source. But systems change is also about grappling with agency and power. Who's at the source of the problem and what do they need to do and how do they need to change? Are they pushing people in, for example, with their actions or at least creating the conditions in which people can easily fall in? And the sorts of kind of systems change work that I do is 
uh, includes things like how do we think about new economic systems that aren't based on fossil fuels? How do we prevent poverty from being caused through our current, for example, labour practices and policies? How do we overcome institutionalised racism and perhaps ongoing practices of colonialisation throughout our social structures? So these are big, meaty things and they're complex. But that's, that's really what I'm thinking about and talking about when I think about systems change. So systems change is hard work. That's one of the kind of realities of it. Facts and evidence about what's wrong with systems or what we need to do to change systems don't work the way that we think or feel that they should to show people how these systems are affecting others. And they don't necessarily motivate people to support change. And so this is the psychologist Daniel Kahneman, and he, some of you might have read his book, in which he explains we have two systems of thinking, fast and slow. And in fact, his book is called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. And I always think it's quite amusing to me as a student of psychology that nobody really paid great attention to Daniel Kahneman's body of work outside of his academic colleagues until someone decided to call him a behavioural economist, even though he's a psychologist. And I just think that's a really interesting insight into the power of words and stories. Anyway, Kahneman and others explain that fast thinking is an entire system of mental shortcuts that help us survive and navigate our information-rich world. Fast thinking helps us to quickly assess, use or discard information we're constantly exposed to, from crossing the road safely to assessing a new piece of government information or advice, and we've got a lot of that obviously coming out at the moment during COVID-19. Fast thinking also protects what we already believe, and it does that so we don't have to constantly reevaluate every piece of knowledge and relearn everything that we have learned, which would simply be beyond our physical and mental capacities. So how does our fast thinking system of shortcuts work? Well, it's all mostly subconscious, which is why we call it fast thinking. We use things like trust and perceived expertise and particular trusted channels, for example, as shortcuts to decide what information we take on. And we're obviously seeing a lot of that at the moment during COVID-19. Neutral evidence, even though it might um, be thoughtfully and neutrally presented is never received neutrally by people. So we use emotion to judge the accuracy of information in the context of what we already know. It's really hard work to slow thinking down and reevaluate and relearn, as I said. So how we feel about a piece of information, so this very fast kind of emotional response, um, it's a bit like a traffic light system, I say, which tells us how information fits with what we already believe. But it also tells us how information fits with what matters to us or what we value. And I'm going to talk about that more a little bit later on in my presentation. One of the things that our fast thinking system also does is that it means that we often attribute cause and effect into relation to big issues. So these big systemic issues like climate change or poverty, those sorts of things to what we can directly sense, to what we can see and hear and describe. We are very inclined to think in very concrete terms and think about individual behavior in terms of a lot of our explanations about how the world works. So some of examples of fast thinking include, and look, there are there are millions of them. Um, psychologists have studied these, all of these cognitive biases and shortcuts that we've had for years, but I'll give you a couple that are really important when we think about systems change. And one of them is normalcy bias. So this is this idea of what we have now, we'll always had. It, it leaves us to underestimate the need for change. We also underestimate threats and problems that are coming at us, for example, climate change. Uh, and often people will fail to prepare or do what's necessary. And this is what I'm showing you here is a tweet, which is an example of the types of normalcy thinking that happen around COVID-19. And you can see that normalcy bias is something that starts to feed into false information, disinformation and, and misinformation. Another kind of fast thinking bias that we have is sunk cost thinking. So we often throw good money after bad because we feel like we have to find a way to value that original commitment. And I always give roads as a classic example of sunk cost thinking. We build more roads because we have roads, even though roads are not where we should be thinking about transport and transport development uh, in 2020 facing climate change. 
uh, negativity bias you would have heard of, we tend to recall uh, negative things more easily than we recall positive things. And the important thing to think about with um, fast thinking is it can create and hold in place mental models or explanations about the world and how it works that aren't based on best knowledge. So brains that are built to take these shortcuts make it quite hard to talk about complex issues in ways that really deepen people's understandings. And then we ourselves as knowledge holders, as advocates for systems change, as people working hard in this space, we're of course not immune to shortcuts. Our brains work that way too. That's how we're built. And our fast thinking system or the kind of bias that we might have is we often assume that people are short of good information, that that's why they're not acting on good evidence or good facts because they just need filling up. It's called the information deficit model. And that what they need is just more information and that will definitely motivate them to act. Uh, sometimes we'll just think they need a good story that just really drives and hits at their emotional level and that doesn't shift thinking in a lot of these existing systems either. So these are some of our own mental shortcuts that we need to slow down our thinking to really overcome when we're thinking about narratives for change as well. So fast thinking of course is reinforced by our context. We're not People are not islands, we're not just brains walking around independent from each other, we exist in a context. And our environment at the moment is filled with a huge amount of information and it's information that we're constantly being exposed to all of the time and the work just to read, reassess and reevaluate is more than what's possible for one person. Um, I know in my area of work there is so much new, interesting, fascinating information that's constantly coming out that I just can't keep on top of. And that's true, I think, for anybody um, in any industry now, really. But our environment's also filled with shallow and unhelpful narratives that influence our thinking. And we can really be exposed to them quite frequently now because of the nature of digital media and the way in which digital media particularly has been constructed in order to expose us to particular types of information. So information can be created with ill intent to gain or embed power and resources. And this is known as disinformation and even something called malinformation. But information can also, false information can also be created and spread with no ill intent, but it's still false information that is spread and we call that misinformation. And so these kinds of narratives and stories and pieces of information in the world that we're constantly exposed to now both create our mental models and are themselves created by our mental models about the world. So our mental models will actually start to create the types of information that we spread. And there's this feedback loop that we see between these shared narratives and shared stories and our mental models about how the world works, what's true and false, and fast thinking can really reinforce this feedback loop. So what I'm showing you here um, is us versus them. And this is a really common and dominant narrative or story that we see in the world. And us versus them works to reinforce a mental model that we might have that people or groups who are different from us, um, working for change, for example, for better inclusion or a system shift, are actually trying to take something from us. And here we see it being used in transport as those who drive cars and those who drive bikes. So that's them and us. And you might identify with one or either of those but generally what we find is that's both of us for example I ride a bike but I also drive a car and what happens is this kind of story really surfaces what we call zero-sum game thinking which is really unhelpful thinking that change means more for you and less for less for me as opposed to better for all of us and we really don't want that type of thinking to be surfaced when we're talking about systems change but what happens is that people working to achieve system science, so people like me, can inadvertently surface this in our own stories and narrative without actually realizing that that's what we're doing. Ultimately, what I want you to know about this is that our fast brains plus these mental models and dominant narratives can lead to unhelpful thinking and mean that at the population level, so at the high level, we tend to hold relatively shallow understandings of our complex issues in the world. And this really creates barriers to deepen understanding and 
means that it's quite hard sometimes to build support for systems change. And this really matters for people working on systems change, obviously. We need to be aware of both how mental models and dominant narratives are working to hold our systems in place if we're going to successfully shift systems. So when we're unaware of fast brains and mental models and dominant narratives like I've just talked about, we may not adopt what we call an evidence-led communication strategy to counter them. Instead, uh, we may communicate in reaction to dominant narratives and use our own invisible mental models about communication. And what we see in the research and what I see uh, in a lot of the work that I do, and in fact, what I have done myself, is that we can tend to think again that if we just talk loudly enough about our good information or facts that people will act, or if we tell a really good emotive story that they'll care and then act. But if we operate under this mental model of our own, then the way that we talk and communicate doesn't really create an alternative narrative and it doesn't change the way that people think about the issue. In fact, what we can be doing is inadvertently reinforcing the dominant narrative and simply reinforcing people's existing uh, ways of thinking, which can be unhelpful. So you can see in this image here, what we've got is often by default, our very um, kind of instinctual way of communicating is to draw on existing dominant narratives and ways of thinking and it's really important to understand when we're doing that because we aren't creating alternative stories that will build support for change so what you can see here is an example of where that happens so um, in climate change what we know from the research is that a landscape of stories that we see involves a huge amount of really fear-driven narratives and thinking around climate change but what we also know is that for large groups of people and i'll talk about who those people are soon this doesn't tend to surface thinking about the types of complex solutions that are required that they can engage in and rather what it tends to do is surface unhelpful thinking uh, that we know exists in the world, like that governments and people in governments are kind of uniquely useless and can't fix anything, that the system is rigged against most people, um, these what we call a kind of fatalism narrative, and that this is all out of my control. And I don't know about you, but certainly when I see a lot of this stuff, it makes me want to just go and hide under the bed and hope that somebody else will solve this problem for me because it just totally freaks me out. But having showed you that, um, there is good news. And the good news is that if we change the way we talk and we communicate based on good science, we can create some of those conditions for systems change to happen. And what the science tells us is that how people who hold knowledge talk, their narratives, if they're constructed and used in particular ways, we can change narratives across the public conversation. And uh, these narratives feed into people's mental models, surfacing deeper understandings, uh, building new mental models even and ultimately um, building support for change and so I want to show you how this work has been done in the uh, in some case studies so I'm also just trying to look at the chat at the same time I won't I'll answer questions at the end so I want to talk about um, a case study from your country from Australia and this is a narrative for change study from the Australian marriage equality campaign. So initially this campaign or strategy used quite traditional approaches to communicating a problem. It attempted to directly counter unhelpful thinking that existed in this space. Um, it used myth busting a lot, what we call myth busting a lot. This isn't true and here is why. And facts, uh, it led with terms that most people weren't actually familiar with who were outside of the, what we would call the base. So their fast brains tended to skip over it. That's like the legal language of human rights, for example, is something that most kind of people in that space will skip over because they don't necessarily understand what it means. It was a multidisciplinary approach, but there were also lots of different narratives at play, which make, in a fast-paced, really busy information environment, makes it really hard for people to catch that narrative. But then the narrative strategy changed, and the campaign used a very particular type of evidence-led strategy that we know to be effective to frame the issue for people and they used values which I'm going to talk about today and in this case the values that the campaign led with was something that we call mature love that's not cheesy kind of um, hallmark card type love but really love is this kind of powerful connecting human value 
And it was a narrative strategy that really helped all of the other work because narrative strategy in itself is not the, the magic pill, but it helped all of the other movement work to overcome some of the shallow thinking that existed in society about who gets to experience love and marriage. And it really deepened people's thinking about what and who marriage is for. And what the important thing is it opened heterosexual people's minds to the ask because they were the people that we needed to reach in order to reach a tipping point. So that's the first case study. And I'll just do another quick case study on narratives for change that have also worked. The second case study is the redesign of London's transport system to support more active and public transport. And the redesign involved significant protected cycleways and what they, um, these kind of huge cycleways actually they needed to support all the, the people riding bikes in London. And initially it had incredibly strong opposition from what was quite a powerful business lobby group. But the campaign was able to overcome their opposition. And the narrative strategy that they used there was, first of all, they understood what the opposition story was, but they chose not to jump into it. So they didn't do negating and myth-busting and alternative facts. Rather, they, they wanted to know um, how the opposition would respond and they needed to then ignore it and work around it. So they developed their own new narrative using social proof and the right storytellers. And this is an example of the, this new storytellers and the social proof. And these are components as well of, of what we call effective narratives for change. So what's this process of narratives for change that I'm talking about? So all of what I'm going to be talked about has been developed from research, from cultural psychology and anthropology, linguistics, communication science and storytelling traditions. And if you want to know more about the science about it, then there's lots in my book um, that kind of contains all the research. But the first aspect of narratives for change is you need to map the landscape to understand these dominant narratives which I've talked about and the kind of unhelpful thinking which I've also talked about that hold problematic systems in place. And we need to understand how we might be surfacing them with our own stories and communication. But what we also need to look for there is the more helpful thinking because people aren't monolithic. They, while they might be uh, influenced by unhelpful thinking and hold unhelpful thinking, people also hold quite helpful thinking. So we're looking for as well the types of quieter, what we call more recessive narratives and uh, more helpful thinking that people hold. And that's, so that's mapping the landscape. And then second, what we need to do is really um, develop this evidence-driven strategy for surfacing helpful thinking. And we need to find and test narrative strategies that help people think more helpfully and see how to remodel or even build new systems based on the good evidence and knowledge that we have. And finally, narrative change is, is really about building a movement uh, across the fields of practice or the fields of interest. Uh, and I would say for climate things like climate change, it's across humanity really. So across domains, we all need to be traveling in the same direction for best impact. So that's why you've got a whole lot of people mainly cycling and moving in the same direction in that image because it takes practice and it takes discipline and a level of sophistication as well. And so narratives for change really is this work of developing inclusive and knowledge-rich narratives to help build support for a systemic change. Sometimes those narratives already exist and we need to use tools to surface those uh, narratives and really exercise them, like building up a muscle because they haven't been exercised. Sometimes they don't exist and we need to find uh, new stories and new narratives and new thinking. So what are the component parts? And what I'm going to talk about now for the rest of the um, the rest of the presentation is this uh, building blocks for change, which is um, what we hope to give people, whoever we talk to and, and whoever we work with, is a framework really to think about how to develop new narratives and stories around systems change. So these are our five building blocks for change, and it's one framework to approach narratives. And it's really a bird's eye view. Um, and in our work and in our training and in our own research that we do, we obviously dig right down into the detail of these. But I'll go through them first. So the first you'll see there um, is audience. So you need to know your audience. Lots of communications are aimed at the noisy few or the hardest to move. And while we focus on those people, we we ultimately can amplify their message. When we myth bust, negate, um, we're alarmed and we share and we talk about how terrible it is, we're not telling our own story. So before thinking what we say, we think about who we should be talking to and what our story is that needs to be told. 
Second, we talk about leading with a vision. And we're asking people to go against embedded ways of thinking and seeing the world and systems change work. Um, then and often against their own fast brains as well. So we need really to provide them with a clear picture of a different world in which our evidence has been followed and changes have been happened. Third, we tap into intrinsic value. So you'll see the, the values building block up there. People often talk about engaging with values, but not all values are made equal for a collective and inclusive systems change. So it's the values we hold about taking care of each other and the planet, about discovery and creativity and reaching our goals that really motivate people to act on systems change for what I would call collective well-being over individual well-being. Fourth, better explanation. So people still really need to know how something like poverty or climate change happen. They still need the facts. But and visions and values isn't enough to overcome some of these powerful, often oversimplified explanations that people hold. So people need a better explanation. And our facts need to sit within these explanations. So just yelling facts and evidence of people doesn't replace dominant narratives where fast thinking occur, but there is a particular techniques that we can use to provide people with better explanations and understandings. And finally, our fifth building block at the top is using storytellers with the right story. So this is about who delivers your message um, in the context, for example, of how people um, trust and who they trust and also the story that those uh, storytellers are telling. So let's talk about your audience and um, generally speaking, we consider that there's three main types of people and based on their current position about your issue. There are people who are already persuaded, so they are what we call your base. There are people who are opposed and they're really unlikely to be persuaded. And I think everybody will have somebody in their family at a dinner table conversation who they know those people are. And then there are people who really make up the bulk in the middle. And these are people who don't have a fixed view or might have a mixed view or sometimes competing views that tend to be quite likely held. And they can and are persuaded by good narratives in either direction. And this we know tends to, from our research tends to be the majority of people. And the principles that we uh, say about knowing your audience is avoid using your time and resources on the firmly opposed. Focusing on those who are firmly opposed leads itself to myth busting and negating their arguments. And if you think about the dominant narratives and the unhelpful thinking, this ultimately will reinforce and amplify those shallow ways of thinking and unhelpful stories. So people who are opposed, this is a really important fact, will react. They will react even more when you use stories that work on the kind of people in the middle. And you need to develop a thick skin and a really clear path forward that navigates around them, not through their stories. Don't be afraid of messages, messengers that sorry, messages that are unpopular with people who are really fixed in their opposing views. And that can be a real challenge for a lot of organisations that I work with, for example, local councils or government, who tend to feel like they have to keep everybody happy. And what ends up happening is they are orientating all of their story around the very hard, fixed, noisy opposition, which are mainly in the minority, but because of social media, we tend to think they occupy a greater position than they are. So instead, what you need to do is focus on finding effective ways to communicate with persuadable people. So don't test your communications first on people who are persuade. You've got to, sorry, test your communications on people who are, you think are persuadable as well as your base. Don't test your communications just on your supporters already. This is kind of like asking your mum if your drawing that you did at school is a good one. Um, they're already persuaded. They'll usually agree and share any message, even those messages that are amplifying an unhelpful story. And effective strategic communications will activate your base and convince people who are already open to persuasion, and it will annoy your firmly opposed. So this is, again, from the Australian Marriage Equality Campaign, and this is called the Ring Your Rellos. And the narrative um, in here and the focus was clearly on those who are persuadable. So those are the mums, dads, aunts, uncles, grandparents and parents of gay people who we needed to vote for the systemic change. So if we do have an effective story that the base will share with persuadables, we can reach tipping points much earlier than we think. In fact, research suggests that um, the tipping point for change comes at as little as 25%. So that's something to give you positive thought and hope for. So our second building block is around the vision. 
Martin Luther King's speech started with, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And Martin Luther King had a vision of a better world and he shared it. And you may recall that we talked about some of those fast thinking characteristics humans have that make it difficult to convey best knowledge that's counter to our dominant narratives. So the negativity bias, for example. And these mental shortcuts mean that opening with our narratives with problems won't shift people. Having no hope and no vision gives people little motivation to stop and reconsider uh, their thinking in the light of the information you're trying to communicate. People need reminding of the future can be better with concrete and clear descriptions of a better world. And that's how we open. That's not to say we don't talk about our problems and the barriers and the inequities and the injustice, but the order matters. So starting with visions and laying out clear, engaging pathways is a really important place to start. We also talk about selling the cake. A large component of good vision making is about not mistaking the kind of intricate policy changes or the widgets that you want to make a difference from or the steps to get there for the cake. Uh, it's really important that you start people with the cake and then you can talk about the ingredients later. Um, so you, you avoid trying to get people to see the value of acting on something by telling them about the policy changes. Instead, you need to tell them about the better world and the changes they'll experience and how it will um, affect people's lives. So uh, advocating for carbon tax is fine, but our planet and our health first would be better as an example of the difference between the ingredients and the cake. Our fast thinking system also makes it quite difficult to see human agency in complex systems like, for example, the economy. Um, they don't know how a system came in place and they may think that it's part of a kind of a natural order. Uh, we're often inattentive in the kind of people um, when we talk about change. And so our visions for a better world need to really move quite quickly into naming people who can help achieve our better world and how. And these are called people with agency. Often these are people with power, like uh, if we think about what how power looks like. And so while we name these agents, so these people who need to change and the types of behaviours, we probably want to avoid villainizing them because generalizations about people or groups tend to get that persuadable group, that group in the middle's backs up and it doesn't help advance your story. So describing the government as corrupt, for example, won't help overcome unhelpful thinking. And often if we're looking to the government who has a lot of levers as a solution, as an institution that represents all of us, we don't want to villainize them because we actually need them to engage in part of our solutions. And this is an example of um, that's naming agents done well. This is from 350.org. And um, we know banks have a huge influence over investment, for example, in the fossil fuel industry. And here, 350 is asking banks to change their behaviour in line with another bank, which has just done so in New Zealand, which is Kiwi Bank. And they have said that they will no longer invest or fund fossil fuels. So to sum up, to convey on those first two building blocks on both your audience and your vision is the importance of telling your story to the persuadables as opposed to addressing the inaccuracies of the stories in those hard to persuade opposition group, the importance of conveying your vision positively and using the right details including the cake and the actors who need to change. Our third building block that we talk about is about connecting to people's most helpful values or their why in life. And these values are these things that matter to us most and they're really at the heart of our motivations. And a, a kind of shorthand I use to think about what a value is, is if you were to look back on your life, what are the things that you would have really wanted to prioritize and have thought about as most important? These tend to be our values. And they're why we come to believe certain things about the world and what solutions are needed. So um, we might, for example, come to believe that other people are inherently selfish and so the solutions are needed. I just need to look after my own and let's all pay less tax, for example. And so really values are at the heart of people's beliefs and behaviours and their emotions. And people often talk about engaging with people's values to better communicate. However, people hold a really wide range of values and often communicators misinterpret what values people actually hold most dear because our perceptions about what people value highly are often incorrect due to those dominant cultural narratives and discourses by the powerful um, that surface values really relating to things like wealth and success and status. 
And research has shown that what really matters most to most people is taking care of each other and the planet. And these are also, helpfully, the values that are most likely to motivate people to seeing evidence and knowledge that relates to collective improvements. Uh, so how do we put narratives into our uh, values, into our narratives? What I'm showing you here is from the Common Cause Foundation, which we are part of. It's an international foundation, and there's Common Cause in Australia as well. And it's a map of basic human values, which was developed uh, not, I have to say, in this pretty way by psychologists, because psychologists do not draw pretty maps like this. Uh, Common Cause turned Shalom Schwartz's research on the basic values that he found were occurring and reoccurring across cultures. I just want to pause and acknowledge here that this is cultural psychology research, and it's strongly influenced by Western systems of research. And so the process used to study values and the language that's used in this framework to categorize and name them is not going to be a good fit for everybody and all cultures and understandings. It is simply one tool through which we can stimulate discussion, thinking and work around values. And so with that in mind, what these researchers found, there's a clear group of recurring values across countries and cultures, and they call these basic human values. And the map shows the values that he identified. There are 10 segments, and then you'll see values within those segments, and some of which will um, seem quite uh, normal to you and some which you might have some queries on. Uh, the commoncause.org is you can go and have a look and uh, really explore these values in more detail if you're interested. But for the purposes of today's presentation, we can group these two values, these, sorry, segments of values into two main groups, intrinsic and extrinsic, and they serve different purposes for systems change. Um, is that one group of values, uh, self-direction, universal benevolence, these are intrinsic values, and they are things that matter that have internal inherent rewards from us. And the other main group is these extrinsic values, and when they're the things that matter, they come with external rewards for us, often material things and accolades. And we all hold a mixture of intrinsic and extrinsic values. We tend to dispositionally prioritise particular ones. And you'll note the security values down at the bottom right and this is when the things that matter are about keeping our country or ourselves safe from dangers. Here are two ads that use intrinsic and extrinsic values. So obviously a car ad, very common, uses extrinsic values to communicate and this is from New Zealand government's COVID response which is using intrinsic values to communicate around COVID. But what the research has to say about the different groups of values and um, is that um, when we prioritise intrinsic values, so creativity or harmony with the environment, love for each other, responsibility for others, that's associated with thoughts and behaviours and actions that are more useful to collective well-being and kind of um, inclusive systems, and more altruistic behaviours, more tolerance of others. Extrinsic values, when they're prioritised, are associated with thoughts and behaviours and actions that are useful to us as individuals sometimes, but are also associated with behaviours and actions that can harm our kind of collective well-being. So an example of that would be a strong prioritisation on achievement in schools leads to greater to anxiety and depression in young people, while security values, for example, prioritising fear of our in-group or um, of an out-group or national security um, are associated with individualistic actions, but also intolerance for any kind of complexity or ambiguity, for example, like what we need to do with climate change. And generally what the Common Cause research tells us is intrinsic values are more helpful to our collective goals. And so, what I'm showing you here is research from New Zealand, but it's the same in Australia that when we ask people to name the values that they most um, aspire to, you'll see it is intrinsic values. And I've just put here, this is a graph of the ratio of intrinsic to extrinsic values. So anything above the line means that people prioritize intrinsic over extrinsic values. And you'll see that Australia is doing quite well. In fact, I think it comes before New Zealand. But the question is, if we all care and we all aspire to these great intrinsic things, then how did we get here? Why are we still trying to do this work on systems change? There's a really interesting quirk of humanity, which is that few of us will do the thing we aspire to most if we think nobody else cares. And while this is a study from the UK, which again, when people were asked about their values and what matters to them most, they prioritise intrinsic values. They were then asked what other people valued most. 
the exact opposite. So people tend to think that other people are only self-interested. And why would that be? Because of the dominant narratives and what that is, and the mental models that that is feeding into. Uh, and a lot of our commercial and political messaging is around extrinsic value of status, image, success, and the economy as an end to itself. And what we know is that um, when we feel this, what we call perception gap between what we value and what we think everybody else values, we disengage. We don't engage as citizens. We tend not to engage um, in democracy and we really lose hope. So that perception gap is incredibly important. What it means for our narratives is that we need to shift the values context in our narratives. We're trained to meet people where they're at, but because of the dominant narrative, we tend to think people are self-interested and we actually need to start guiding people's attention towards helpful existing intrinsic values. Um, I was going to show you a quick video, but I'm actually going to skip over that because I'm a little bit short of time, which is really just about inspiring you. I can put that in the chat later for you to watch and I'll let Steve know that it's there. Um, so I've talked about our three building blocks and I'm going to finish off quickly talking about our last two building blocks, which is about better explanations because leading with values and vision and knowing your audience and your story is incredibly important. But when we're working on complex issues, we also need better explanations because our current explanations are too shallow. Um, but we don't need to just describe the problem over and over again. That's not a new explanation. And negating and myth-busting other people's incorrect facts as well, that's not a new or better explanation. Uh, so what we need to do is use language and things called frames, metaphors, uh, to present our facts um, to advance a clear narrative about cause and effect. So what I, what I often say to people is explaining is very different from describing a problem and a good explanation is grounded in understanding how people's thinking works and how we can open a side door. So frames is a word we use to describe these pre-packaged explanations that we might use, and they're one of our fast-thinking strategies. And the words and images we evoke from a particular frame or shortcut um, are a shortcut to understand what we're seeing or hearing. So when I say to you, don't think of an elephant, what are you thinking about? So George Lakoff, who's a cognitive linguist, shows us that if we use particular words, particular images, particular ways of speaking, then people will automatically think of that very specific thing. And we possibly don't want them to be thinking about those things. What we want, and, and, and basically what he's saying there, is that we can't negate a frame that exists in society, but we can create a new frame to explain an issue. And what I'm going to give you here is an it's three examples of particular frames that are used in COVID. Well, actually, I'll give you two frames and an alternative strategy that people tend to use. The first is an economic frame or financial one, and that tells us that the economy is the thing that we must serve first in our COVID response. And that's a particular way of seeing uh, COVID and the COVID response. The alternative frame or the new one Neil, is um, telling us that People's health is the thing that we must serve first and our interconnections with each other. So that's the alternative frame and different story. And they lead to very different understandings and solutions, some of which are more harmful to groups who are excluded and vulnerable people than others. I've also put up a classic negating with facts response. So what we can see is that's actually not a frame at all. And you can see how putting up facts against a frame is not particularly useful when we're thinking about it. Metaphors are also another simplifying tool that we can use to explain how something that's complex or abstract work. Um, a metaphor takes something simple and everyday and links it to something more complex or abstract. We use lots of metaphors to explain the economy because it's an abstract thing. It doesn't actually exist, to be honest. And when we choose to use weather, or um, natural system metaphors, for example, we say the economy is a natural force or a storm to be weathered. It means that we've taken a complex abstract thing and linked it to something that's not controlled by humans. It's a, the weather system. So people then can't see how we could possibly change the rules of the economy. 
But we can also talk about machines in relation to the economy. We talk about driving the economy or building an economic response. And in this metaphor, we're providing a different explanation for people about how the economy works, one in which people are involved and people shape it. And this is an example here of a tested metaphor that we used in poverty. Um, we talked about um, and tested and randomized control trials, particular metaphors, and we talked about how poverty constricts and constrains people. And we also talked about how we can unlock poverty. And that really helped people to understand the external forces which create poverty and the human agents involved. And facts, so we often want to lead with our very important facts to deepen people's understanding, but describing a situation with facts isn't explaining how it came about and who made it and what needs to be done. Facts don't overcome those um, existing unhelpful stories. And as I said, people's existing frames don't really care about your facts. So what you need is an explanatory story in which your facts make sense with respect to the problem and solution. And what I've given you here is what we call an explanatory chain. And this is a simplifying technique in which we walk people through both the initial factor, the kind of domino effects of that initial factor through to the solution. So it's like a mini story within a story. And within that, we embed our facts. So in here, we're talking about how the justice system is unequal and uh, creates negative outcomes for Māori in New Zealand. And the fact is actually buried deep within this where we talk about in the fifth box, if you can see that, we talk about the fact that more European New Zealanders are charged with violent crimes, dishonesty and property, but more Māori people are actually convicted of these crimes. So the fact is buried in there in a story about the justice system and what needs to be done about it. So we really need to think about telling stories with our facts, not thinking that facts are the story themselves. They're just a character we need to use. And finally, I'm finish off and hopefully give it a little few minutes for questions is storytellers. Storytellers are our fifth building block and that's because credibility and trust is part of our fast thinking system and people use um, shortcuts to confer credibility and trust and one of those shortcuts is people or in fact the source of information. And it's really important we don't assume that expertise or kind of institutional gravitas is a shorthand for trust because for lots of people there's a perception of trust that doesn't actually come from people's real expertise. There's a host of individual and social factors that come into to play um, when people are conferring trust. There are really three lessons from the evidence on our storytellers. And the first one is that it's really important to provide positive social proof to people to improve credibility of information. So seeing others who we trust do the thing is incredibly important and it makes the information more credible. Using messengers with shared values it's important to find messengers who people can see their values in. And this is often why surprising messengers can work. For example, people who are seen as conservative talking about climate action. And the third lesson we talk about is you really need to pair your messenger with all of those component parts of the right narrative that we've talked about. So getting a great messenger is one thing, but if they don't tell a good story, then you've kind of wasted all your energy getting the great messenger. So it really needs to be right messenger with the right message. And this is an example from the Climate Coalition um, Show the Love campaign in the UK. And they have really um, kind of nailed what a good messenger do. You'll see this nice bloke in the suit and tie down the bottom is uh, he's a conservative MP in the UK talking about climate change. So um, that's really combining social proof and messengers to share the values with many different people. So that's me. I have given you a huge amount of information and hopefully you can go and have a look at it. And I just want to say it's sophisticated work, there's complexity in it, but I'm deeply hopeful um, of a paradigm shift because while the few power holders might tell us differently, as people who have much in common across our differences, we've got an enormous amount of power to tell stories to help us create and redesign our current systems for paradigm shifts. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jess. That was super, super interesting. Thank you. Um, we have we have time for, and we have uh, a couple of questions that have been posted. Uh, the first one that came through from Yuan, uh, he asked, 
Do fast brains and shallow narratives explain the rise of conspiracy theories and people who believe them? And how do we counter this? <laughs> yes. Yep. Totally. Um, fast brains. Um, one of the things that we know with people who believe particularly in conspiracy theories is there's often a trust issue. So um, I'm not sure what the situation is in, in Australia, but in New Zealand, for example, um, we know that people who don't trust the government, who may have good reason not to trust the government, for example, if we think about excluded groups who haven't been taken care of by the government, or even don't trust scientists because they've had bad experience with research or medical, they are more inclined to think about um, conspiracy theories or false information as being more trustworthy than it is because it's coming from those messengers who they trust. So these kind of calls, which we often see from government to say, listen to the scientists, listen to your doctor, is actually really unhelpful for a lot of groups who don't feel trust in those people. So it's going to be really important to think about who is trusted for these excluded groups and how can we build credibility of the information through those kind of fast thinking shortcuts of trust and credibility, yeah. Uh, we have a, another question um, asking, do you have any tips for advocating for these slow thinking practices in a work environment that highly values haste? productivity and efficiency. <laughs> this is, you know, it's so funny. This is a this is a challenge we face in our own organization, which is, a, you know, it's basically a startup and operates in similar ways to startups. And haste and efficiency and productivity is something which can overtake us. And for us, because we work in values, obviously, we have done a lot of time thinking about our values and really articulating both what our values mean um, but also how do we use those values in our decision making? And so I would say that it's definitely helped us to articulate intrinsic values, but also make sure that we're accountable to those values in a lot of the kind of choices and decisions that we make. And in fact, I do work with government departments who often will talk about intrinsic values, but don't necessarily live to those intrinsic values about how you can formalize values in your decision making. Because, you know, narrative is really, really important, but it's not enough. It's just where you start. So you then have to say, how do we bring those values into our decision making? That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. I, I hope you.